It's 2024, which means there's an election taking place. In just a few days, voters in Iowa and the New Hampshire will start casting their votes for their presidential picks. We'll be talking with the Post political reporters tomorrow on Post Reports about how this is all playing out. But 2024 is a big election year, not just in the United States. There's Mexico's presidential race. It's a historic first for Mexico. Two women at the forefront of the country's presidential primaries. And India's. 2024 is going to be a very, very important year for India as it goes to polls. And Prime Minister Narendra Modi is vying for a third term. There's elections across the European Union. More than 400 million people across the EU will get to choose a new parliament for a five-year term. There's no shortage of critical issues to vote on, from the green transition, inflation and energy prices, to migrants and borders. Roughly half the world's population could be heading to the voting booth this year. And for many places, democracy itself is on the ballot. Like this Saturday in Taiwan. Regardless of which party you ask, these elections are a pretty big deal. Christian Shepard is a correspondent for The Washington Post. He's based in Taiwan and has been covering the upcoming election. The two parties have really both framed it as being a big turning point for Taiwan. You You have one party, the incumbents, saying this is a choice between autocracy and democracy. And the other side is saying... This is a choice between war and peace. At the core of this tension is what to do about China, which is just 100 miles away. It's been tense for a long time, but it's gotten much tenser in recent years. China claims Taiwan is part of its own and regularly operates military aircraft and warships around the country. But officials here are concerned that that activity is going to increase. Beijing has started to fly its warplanes ever closer to the island and in huge numbers. It's sending its aircraft carriers around Taiwan and into the Pacific. It's really created this sense of urgency and concern that something could go wrong. There could be a misunderstanding, maybe an accidental collision that could then spark a bigger conflict. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm your guest host, Arjun Singh. It's Thursday, January 11th. Today, we talked to Christian about one of the world's first big elections of 2024, Taiwan. We'll explore the candidates and the global stakes of this race. So... This year, it's an election year in Taiwan, just like it's going to be an election year here in the United States. And, you know, first, I'm really curious is a little bit of how election season kind of feels in Taiwan. Is there pomp and pageantry like you see in the United States and other countries? And what's the mood right now around this election? Are people feeling excited, nervous? What's the sentiment? Politics in Taiwan, I mean, it's really vibrant. It's a really young democracy. It only really democratized in the 90s. So this is only the eighth general election. And you have this kind of sense that people are still pretty keen to be involved. You know, you have lots of people out on the street in convoys, kind of with flags 
supporting their preferred candidates, these big rallies where they play kind of soaring music and have lots of call and response chants, things like Made in Taiwan or Give Us Our Country Back. And so it's really kind of a, a whole of society, almost a carnival atmosphere as you get ahead of the election. So who is the current president and ruling party right now? So for the last eight years, the Democratic Progressive Party, often called the DPP, has ruled Taiwan. And their president, Tsai Ing-wen, she's been pretty popular throughout that period. She has begun to reshape Taiwan's role in the world. She has kind of improved the relationship with the United States. But she can't stand as president again. It's a two-term limit here. So she's going to be stepping down, and the question is who's going to replace her. And before we get into who's running in this election and the different parties, I'd love to kind of help you situate me a little bit. What are some of the things that we should know about Taiwan to better understand these elections? Taiwan is a pretty big island, about 100 miles off the coast of China. And despite its relatively small size, it's a pretty important economy. I mean, depending how you measure it, it's about 20th in the world. They have a super impressive manufacturing sector. It's really important for microchips, right? That's right, yeah. They make a lot of semiconductors, microchips that go into your phones. One of the companies that makes iPhones, Foxconn, that's based here in Taipei. They have the world's largest manufacturer Mm. of bikes. So, you know, they're a very impressive economy. And, you know... You mentioned China, and I know that the relationship between Taiwan and China is very important. But can you help me better understand that relationship? Because I've heard various things from different world actors that some recognize Taiwan as an independent nation, but others say that Taiwan is not recognized and that it's actually a part of China. And this is something that China seems to state as well. Can you explain that a little bit, Christian? Why does China claim sovereignty over Taiwan, but Taiwan doesn't seem to agree? It's a very long and complicated story, (laughs) and I'm going to do my best to boil it down. I mean, I think probably the best place to start is after the Second World War. You know, Taiwan was a Japanese colony for 50 years. And at the end of the Second World War, when Japan surrendered, it got handed back to China. But it was kind of an uneasy relationship from the start. The Nationalist Party that was in charge of China at the time, they ruled Taiwan with an iron fist, almost from the the get-go. And then about four years later, the Nationalist government, they lost the civil war with the Communist Party, and they ended up having to move the whole government, the government that had been ruling all of China, to this island. And so from then on, you have this kind of big standoff between the nationalist government in Taiwan and the Chinese Communist Party over who gets to rule. And so Taiwan has wanted to preserve that separation from communist China's mainland to this day, while communist China wants it to be part of that mainland? Well, China has essentially said ever since the People's Republic was founded that Taiwan is part of its territory. Now, people in Taiwan dispute that, and they have no interest in being ruled by the Chinese Communist Party. But that's kind of 
gone on ever since 1949. But the way that Taiwan operates, I mean, if anyone were to look at it, you would say, well, that looks a lot like a country. It's got its own government, it's got its own electoral system, it's got a thriving economy. Uh, and most people in Taiwan, if you ask them, they're going to say, I'm Taiwanese. They're not going to say, I'm Chinese. So let's get into this week's big election and, you know, also how that issue of the tense relationship with China is going to come to a head. How many people are running for president? Is there a front runner? And if you could, tell me a little bit about the parties that these candidates represent. So the three people who are on the ballot, the first person, the front runner, is called Lai Qingde. And he's from the Democratic Progressive Party, the DPP that's been ruling Taiwan for the last eight years. The main opposition is the nationalists, you know, the, the party that came over from China after the Civil War. And he's called Hou Youyi. And his party, which is normally referred to as the Kuomintang, they want to have a little bit of a, a kind of friendlier relationship with China. And then there's this third candidate, and he's a bit of a dark horse in the race. Normally, it would just be the two main parties fighting it out. But Ke Wenzhe and the Taiwan's People's Party, they've been surprisingly popular this time. And he's running kind of a, an anti-establishment campaign that has spoken to younger voters in particular. So it's unique in this election that you're seeing actually a somewhat viable third-party candidate getting to the forefront of some of these issues. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you've had people try and stand as independents before, but they've never really had the same pull that Kerr has had this time. So tell me a little bit more about the frontrunner, Lai. You said he represents the DPP. What do you think it is about him that has pushed him into this frontrunner status amongst the public right now? Well, Lai has been with the DPP from the very start. Um, he kind of started as as more of almost an activist and then a very local level grassroots politician kind of pushing Taiwan to democratize. And he's slowly risen up to become, as he is now, the vice president. But he's always kind of come from that a little bit more scrappy wing of the party and the wing of the party that is really focused on making sure that Taiwan defends its sovereignty. And the DPP is the party that's currently in power right now. Are they a popular party? They've been pretty popular, and I think Tsai in particular, the current president, has managed to maintain a reasonably strong support. But any party that's been in power for eight years, you're going to have a bunch of kind of resentments, concerns building up over that time period. Mm -hmm. And so they have kind of struggled to keep the momentum going. So the fact that Lai is ahead kind of speaks to the fact that the opposition has failed to get its act together. The thing that you kind of find most striking about DPP rallies is that, you know, it's all about Taiwan, Taiwan, Taiwan. You know, mm -hmm. it's about this local identity. Um, they use the color green uh, to kind of signify the mountains, you know, which is further away from the sea, as in like, we were here first, you know, we kind of represent local interests. So here's a short example from a rally over the weekend where people came out to support Lai and his vice president candidate, Xiao Bi Kim. 
And what they're shouting is like a call and response. It's made in Taiwan. And not only is that, you know, particularly in English, you know, about being proud of, you know, being made in Taiwan, being from Taiwan, but it's also a pun on the names of Lai and Xiao, which kind of means virtue. It combines their names to say virtue. So it's kind of this real pride in Taiwanese identity. Mm. If you even look back to pretty early in the campaign, the opening of a party conference last July, there's music playing in the background, and Lai tells his supporters, I will continue to take Taiwan forward on the road to democracy. I've got a direction. I can execute on this. But what is his actual position towards working with China and dealing with China? He says he wants to do essentially the same thing that Tsai has done, which is to say, look, we're happy to talk with China. Absolutely willing to do that. We're happy to trade with China. Mm -hmm. But it kind of needs to be done as equals. Mm -hmm. And we can't have this situation where you're going to use our economic relationship in order to try and pressure us to give up our independence. Mm -hmm. And he's very wary of Chinese intentions. So he also wants to keep building up Taiwanese defenses. But he says he's not going to declare independence. You know, there's no need to do that because Taiwan kind of is independent already, at least for all intents and purposes. And so on the other side of him, you had mentioned that there's someone representing a party called the Kuomintang, the KMT. I want to hear a little bit more about this person and, and just a little history lesson for me, Christian. When I hear Kuomintang, is that the party that Taiwan's first president, Chiang Kai-shek, had actually formed when Taiwan was created after the Chinese Civil War? That, that seems like a very historic party, if that's correct. Yeah, I mean, what they like to say is they're the oldest party in the Chinese-speaking world. And they've certainly been around for a long time. They've been around for longer than the Chinese Communist Party. Wow. And at first, they were really keen to retake China from the Communist Party. But more recently, their position has evolved, and they're actually kind of friendly to China now, at least compared to Lai and the DPP. That's really interesting. And so if you described Lai's policy as saying, we'll talk to China, we'll work with China, but we want to be seen as independent as China, and we're not afraid to build up a little bit more military. What is Ho's response to that and the KMT's response to that? Do they have a similar position on China, or what do they say? So they would tell you, look, we're not going to kind of give Taiwan up. We're going to continue to build up defenses. But they think that you could kind of give China a bit more leeway, and you can be willing to trust them, to talk to them, to kind of engage in more trade. So they're kind of just willing to try things out, increase dialogue, exchanges, and hope that then Beijing will dial down the military aggression. You know, I know that there was a moment when these two, Lai and Ho, debated each other. And what was really interesting about it is that Ho decided not to speak in Mandarin during the debate. And that was something kind of unusual. Can you explain the context around that and why that was seen as such an interesting decision on his part? Well, Ho's really tried to kind of play up his local roots. And so what he did was kind of encroached on Lai's turf a little bit 
and he decided to address him with some pretty pointed questions using Taiwanese Hokkien, a language which has its roots in parts of southern China, and then from some of the earliest inhabitants of Taiwan, it kind of developed into its own language. So the translation of this is, uh, Mr. Lighting the, you say over and over that Taiwan is already an independent country and that our Taiwan doesn't need to declare independence. So are you willing to think of the common people and publicly renounce your pro-Taiwan independence stance here and now? And the goal there is to sort of signal to people, listen, I am an authentic Taiwanese person. I, is that what he's sort of signaling there? Yeah, absolutely. He kind of wants people to know that he's kind of one of them too. I have read that, you know, looming over all of this is Beijing and that they've actually exerted pressure campaigns in support of Ho. In-laws, love them or hate them, you're pretty much stuck with them. And when you're a ruler in the Middle Ages, that can be a serious problem. It might even land you dead. I'm Dan Jones, and on season four of This Is History, I'm telling the story of England's weirdest king, Henry III. He's in way over his head, and he's surrounded by bloodthirsty relatives with their eyes on his throne. To listen, search This Is History and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Is that true, and what have those campaigns looked like? Well, they've certainly exerted a lot of pressure against Lai. I mean, they made it very clear very early on that they do not like him and they consider Lai a separatist. And what they've been doing is kind of ratcheting up the, the military activity around Taiwan and then also making these very strong statements about the fact that the unification between Taiwan and China is an inevitability. After the break, more on China's looming presence in this election, how that is affecting Lai, the frontrunner, and Ho, his main opponent, and making way for a surprise third-party candidate. We'll be right back. You know, one thing I'm curious about when you talk about these Chinese military drills and kind of campaigns happening right around Taiwan. Now, is that something that people living within the island are able to notice and hear? I mean, for members of the Taiwanese public, for example, will you be able to physically see or hear these military drills? And is that kind of psychological pressure factoring into this and weighing on people as they're thinking about who to elect as their next leader? Well, people in Taiwan have gotten very used to Chinese military saber-rattling. They kind of know that China's going to keep flying these warplanes. But you do see these moments where people get pretty concerned. Mm -hmm. Most recently, that was when the former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan. The Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives, Nancy Pelosi, is in Taiwan tonight, and China is already responding. Today, a Chinese foreign ministry spokesman repeated threats of military action. You know, China did not take well to that. 
Across the 100-mile-wide Taiwan Strait, it's a battle of drills. As soon as Pelosi they were firing missiles uh, around Taiwan, some of which actually flew directly over the islands. You had record numbers of warplanes, uh, massive military exercises. Basically, China was sending a message to both the U.S. and the government in Taiwan that it doesn't want these high-level visits to take place. It doesn't want any sign that the relationship between Taiwan and the U.S. is getting stronger, maybe more official, because it thinks that will make it harder for it to take control of Taiwan. Mm-hmm. But when you get these moments, you know, people in Taiwan, they do get concerned, but they tend to die out pretty quickly. And there's certainly some people here who feel that really this is all just a show from China. So you get a mix of opinions. I mean, what you're describing, you know, those those scenes are unimaginable to my life here. And, you know, I'm sure that it is causing people to think differently about these two parties, which is then what leads me to wonder about the third candidate, the Taiwan's People Party candidate. Where does he fit into this equation? And what is kind of his message and his supporters, why are they attracted to him? So Koenja, I mean, he's, he's kind of hard to pin down. So Ko is the, the former mayor of Taipei, the capital city, and he was very popular, and so popular that he was able to found his own party, the Taiwan People's Party. And he's kind of an oddball character. He's, he's very straight-talking, you know, occasionally kind of verging on rude. Uh, he's a, a former surgeon, and his supporters call him KP, or Professor Kerr, kind of a nod to the fact that they think, you know, that this is a smart guy who's kind of got our interests at heart. And then there was this sort of pivotal moment in the campaign. It looked like he was going to unite with the KMT, the main opposition, and that would have really been a kind of massive change in the race. But then at this rally at a sports stadium in New Taipei City, he announced he wasn't going to do that. So what he was saying is, this nation's future will be decided by the people. This is the core value of democracy. I won't go against the will of the people, and I won't betray you. I will do everything in my power to move Taiwan forward. We cannot backtrack. To end people's suffering, I will use maximum goodwill to unite all the power that can be united. But I will continue to stand as the presidential candidate of the Taiwan People's Party to fight to the end. And the crowds went wild, because he's essentially saying there, I'm not going to work with anyone else. You know, I'm going to go it alone. So you start to hear these chants of, what's Taiwan's choice? Ke Wenzhe. What's our choice? Ke Wenzhe. And also, you know, give the country back to us. So people, you know, are really kind of fired up in this moment. I think really what his popularity shows is that there's just this kind of populist, anti-establishment appeal, which is kind of drawing people in. And mostly these are people who are fed up with the main two parties. 
But outside of just kind of an anti-establishment position, what's in it for Kerr? I mean, what is his motivation to break from this two-party system, if you will? And, you know, what is it that he thinks that he can bring to office through this party that they're not able to get out of the other two parties? What he says he wants to do is to kind of break away from this very ideological divide that has kind of made it very difficult for either party to make progress. And I guess to a lot of his supporters, that is a very appealing prospect. Mm -hmm. You know, this idea that you can kind of do something new and different. But he's also had trouble articulating what that would be. My colleague Vic and I, you know, we met Eva Yu just outside the rally. And, you know, she's 68. She's a retired businesswoman, used to work in China. And, you know, what she was telling us is, you know, most Taiwanese politicians, they don't really have any guts. But Professor Kerr, because he trained as a doctor at National Taiwan University, he makes decisions quickly. We need this kind of leader. So they often talk about, you know, being fed up with the other two parties, that the other politicians, they're not really getting the job done. And Kerr, for whatever reason, seems to be the person they think can do that. What do you think it tells you about this moment in Taiwan's history and Taiwanese politics in particular? Could this be an inflection point? It's definitely a maturing of the democratic system here. And and people here, they've started to talk about, you know, the kind of second generation of democracy, where you kind of move from this big fight just to kind of make democratic systems work to this question of like, well, what happens now? And I think Kerr has been really successful at tapping into some of that kind of anxiety about where Taiwan goes next. So does Kerr pose a real threat to the other candidates? Well, he certainly makes it much more difficult for the KMT to win because he has taken some of their traditional voter base. You know, now I do have to ask just, you know, being here based in Washington, D.C., I see a lot of rhetoric, particularly from American politicians, regarding Taiwan, the potential threat of an invasion by China by Taiwan. Sometimes it can be hard to distinguish what is saber-rattling versus what is, you know, a material threat. But for the United States, why is why do you think that there's so much discussion and interest over what happens in Taiwan in this presidential election? What is kind of the the context of the U.S. involvement here? The United States, I mean, has made it very clear that it does not want to see this escalate, and it certainly doesn't want to see it escalate into an outright military confrontation that could draw in the U.S. military. So it's really in the interests of the United States to find a way to work with both Beijing and Taipei to kind of keep the peace. And that's getting really difficult to do. Beijing does not trust the DPP, and they've already made it clear that they don't trust the front-runner lie. So then how does Washington kind of find a way of managing to stop this kind of very complicated situation from getting out of hand. You know, I want to get to what could happen after this election finishes. So how will China react to all of this? 
What would be the biggest difference between these two candidates from China's perspective? It seems pretty likely that Beijing's pressure tactics aren't going anywhere if Lai wins. But to be honest, even if Ho wins, people think that they'll probably dial back a bit, you know, make a show of being nice and kind of showing that this is the kind of candidate that they want to see. But ultimately, you know, they're kind of got an agenda here, right? They want Taiwan at some point to agree to rule from Beijing. So I think what we're going to see is regardless of who wins, this is going to continue to be a very tense situation. If you take a step back and look at where this is all going, the thing that really matters is can Taiwan continue to withstand this really intense pressure from China? And if it keeps escalating, what do they need to do and how do they need to work with the United States, with other allies, in order to make sure that this situation isn't going to spiral until it breaks into potentially a war. Well, Christian, thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. This is a really fascinating conversation. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Christian Shepard is a China correspondent for The Post based in Taiwan. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Alana Gordon. It was mixed by Sam Baer and edited by Monica Campbell with help from Lucy Perkins. Thanks to Vic Tiang and Paylin Wu. If you love our show, help other people discover it by leaving a rating on Spotify or a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I'm Arjun Singh. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Thank you.